This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Why is women's bench so bad? I mean, not compared to me. We all know that I'm a tranny freak, so that doesn't count. I know we're not talking about Mackenzie Lee. She's got little T-Rex arms and she's like 400 pounds of chest muscle, apparently. I mean, standard bench in powerlifting competition for women. I literally don't understand why it's so bad. Okay, so that's uh, a powerlifter by the name of Ann Andrews uh, in a video posted uh, to social media lamenting what I guess they see is is bad bench pressing amongst women competitors. Now, if you're choosing to compete against those same women, I don't know that it's helping your cause to sort of speak about them as the other, as, as something different. But it does raise a valid point. Uh, Anne Andres is a, a transgender woman, someone who was born a male, grew up as a male, went through puberty and entered adulthood as a male and now identifies as female. Ann Andrews is a powerlifter who competes against women. And just this past weekend in uh, Manitoba, the Western Canadian Powerlifting and Bench Press Championships, Ann Andrews won first place in the females' master unequipped category. Not only won, but set a record. Not only set a record, but shattered the old record by a considerable margin. In fact, the closest competitor, when you talk about the combined weight of the three lefts, squat, bench, and deadlift, the second place competitor was 470 pounds behind. So this is an all-time record in this category, but if you applied those scores in the men's category, uh, it, it wouldn't really rank at all. So... It's interesting, and some sports, as I mentioned earlier, have have addressed this. Swimming, track and field, rugby. But interesting, when it comes to powerlifting, there don't really seem to be any rules beyond how you identify. But is this fair? And I know, you know, the emphasis is on being fair to transgender athletes, but what about uh, for biologically female competitors in something like powerlifting, which is all about strength? Well, joining us to talk more about this issue is, uh, well, certainly someone who has some strong feelings about all of this and someone who has spent many years in the sport, April Hutchinson, uh, veteran Canadian uh, competitive and professional powerlifter, joins us on the line here this afternoon. April, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Thank you very much for having me on today. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're you're with us here because I I do think this deserves some attention. I get there's some sensitivity around these issues, but there are also some some kind of straightforward issues, I think, about fairness that that all of this highlights. So from your perspective, as someone who's competed in this sport, uh, competed as as a woman, obviously, I mean, what is it about to you? Well, I mean, like you said earlier, um, powerlifting is a pure strength sport. So it is it is just mind boggling that, you know, the CPU, the Canadian Powerlifting Union, um, is basically one of the only federations that 
It has no policy. They have no policy. They actually created a trans inclusion policy to make transgendered athletes more welcome. Meaning that, um, you know, my boyfriend could identify as a female tomorrow, come lift with me, crush records at the competition. Hey, he could take my records and beat me. But then the next day he's back to being a male. So, I mean, the other day, uh, I think it was the International World Federation, the Chess Federation put a policy in place for transgenders. So you have a board game. Right now has a policy and a pure strength sport like powerlifting does not. It's it's literally just, it's a South Park episode. It, it really is. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure why chess did that, honestly. I'm not sure why yeah, there are men's and women's exactly. categories in chess to begin with. But um, yeah. no, you're right. When it comes to, you know, physical sports, I mean, rugby's one that's addressed this and, and that makes sense, but certainly powerlifting seems obvious. But as you say, there, there's really no rules at all. No, no, no rules at all. And I mean, I, I've been fighting this for, I, I mean, a couple years now because I brought it to the Federation's um, attention a couple years ago. They ignored me. I was the only one that knew that um, Anne was, in fact, a biological male. Um, so this year, before nationals came along in February, uh, women's groups such as ICONS and ICFS, Linda Blade, um, Marcy Smith, all these wonderful women, Riley Gaines, came to me and helped me kind of with a godsend because they really brought more attention to the topic. And uh, we did like a protest at nationals. And I mean, more and more and people are coming out just saying this is unfair. And what happened on Sunday, even though we didn't want it to happen, it had to happen. He had to go in there and crush all the records. Um, he just turned 40. He just took the records by like hundreds of pounds, almost 500 pounds. And we kind of needed that to happen. Cause I tell you, I get like a hundred messages a day of people saying, wow, I can't believe what's going on over there in Canada with your federation. Okay. Well, explain this to me because this seems contradictory. So the Canadian powerlifting union uh, says they have a mandate to be drug free and they have strict rules around that. So if you were taking testosterone, would that violate the rules of the Canadian Powerlifting Union? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And here I am. I'm 47. I can't even take, I mean, if I wanted to, what if I would like to take hormones to help me with menopause? Like, I'm not in menopause, but I can't take that. That's not allowed. Um, Yeah, testosterone is not allowed. They do have drug testing at competitions, but that's just a urine test for, like, banned substances like... um, um, you know, performance enhancing drugs or like, uh, you know, uppers and stuff like that, but it wouldn't test your t- uh, testosterone. You need like a blood panel for that and a doctor needs to do that. So, I mean, yeah, it's, they're basically telling us that, I mean, there's champions that have been lifting for 10 years that have been routinely tested at home and at work. And that's a hard job. Like being an elite athlete, it's a 24 seven hour a day job. And they're they're pretty pissed off. I mean, I'm pissed off about it, right? Like it's it is. It's very contradictory. It is. So in the meantime, what kind of message does this send to to other female competitors? As I understand that there, there were many who dropped out of that event last yeah. weekend. Well, and that's and I keep getting messages. There's a uh, a woman yesterday that basically said, you know what? I wrote the federation. They ignored me. I. Um, had a mental breakdown because people were telling me, oh, just lose weight and go into a different category so you don't have to compete against him. Um, she had a complete mental breakdown. And I mean, this is someone that uses powerlifting, much like myself, for a, um, a help with my mental health, right? 
And so it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's very it's it's very disheartening for women, not not just women, but I mean, if we don't have this policy changed, it sets a message for girls getting into sports. And it doesn't matter if you're in grade four or in high school. If you're going to a competition knowing that you're just set up to lose, well, why compete? You know what I mean? Why why waste your money? on uniforms why you know you'll lose sponsorships so why set yourself up for that failure it's interesting in this reading you 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 know Anne, and in fact used to be friends Mm -hmm. with Anne. and i mean here's the thing i mean anyone should be able to get into powerlifting and if this is what Anne wants to do and compete in the sport and that's fine right i mean it's it's open to anybody who wants to just get into powerlifting and reap the benefits of, of being in that kind of competitive environment but you know how the CPU is handling it is a different thing. So where where do we find a balance there? Then do you think? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I think people um, take it the wrong way, and, and I don't like seeing that online. You know, a lot of people will bash Anne, um, and it's not Anne. Anne's following the policy that the CPU has created. So if anyone should be you know bashed, it should be the CPU. It's the policymakers. It's the board members. Uh, not so much Anne, but the thing with Anne is the fact that, you know, it would be a different story if he didn't bash women for being weak and mock them, but he has that attitude and that does not help him, right? So no. I can see why no. people do um, focus on him. But going forward, all we have asked is that a separate category, we don't, we want everyone to lift. I want transgender athletes to lift just as much as I do. And we just ask for a separate category or... Um, have an open division where they can go with, you know, I mean, or basically make trans athletes kind of compete in their biological sex. But mm-hmm. I think the the solution, which um, the International Weightlifting Federation has just recently done, was create a division for them. Right. And, and so I wanted to ask you that then, and you kind of answer the question. So th- this is handled differently in, in other countries and internationally. Yeah, so yeah. So I don't know if we have to thank Trudeau for our messed up the way things are because I mean every other country seems to be following like all the other countries um underneath our governing body who is the International Powerlifting Federation they are all following their policy which is testosterone monitoring for 4 years prior to competing. Mm-hmm. The CPU should be aligning with that, but they are not. They've just kind of gone rogue and went on their own. They, Like I said, this is a very unique policy or lack thereof. It's an inclusion policy. And they feel like their hands are tied because of the government, because of Trudeau and all this, like, we have to protect um, transgenders. So what's happened, I don't know if you've noticed, but this transgenderism um, has been kind of new in the last six years. So people don't know how to handle it. And what's happened is women's rights have gone on the back burner. And discrimination against women has gone to the back burner. So it feels like what's happened here with this record, that that something like this was inevitable, was going to happen sooner or later. Do you feel like this marks any kind of turning point? Is is this going to be a wake-up call for the CPU, or or do you fear nothing's really going to change here? I mean, I think that was, like I said, I think it was the best thing that could have happened was Anne taking those records. Um, It had to happen. Uh, You know, there were so many people writing in letters. I wrote letters. I had a lawyer involved, didn't do anything. So, I mean, I think he kind of had, had to see it in action, right? And, I mean, I've been working with, I can't say too much right now, but I have been working with the International Powerlifting Federation, um, chief medical doctors, and uh, the president, 
and there will be some changes coming. I can't say anything right now, but um, I'm positive that the uh, the right decisions and the policies will be made uh, very shortly. We'll see, I guess. Uh, maybe we'll touch base down the road. But April, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate your perspective on all this. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, Take there you care. go. That's uh, April Hutchinson, a, a veteran uh, competitive and professional powerlifter, someone who's been in the sport for many years uh, and has achieved a lot. And I can understand for someone who's, you know, won competitions or set records, it, it just how that's not quite watered down, but just devalued maybe when something like this happens. Like when it comes to powerlifting, especially something like that, there's a reason why there's a men's category and a women's category. So, yes, you can shatter a, a, a female powerlifting record. But if you have that same score, that same weight in, in a men's competition, you know, you'd, you'd barely even qualify. Like, it just would not even be a competitive score. And especially then if you're demeaning women powerlifters and then choosing to compete against them, that's not really helping your cause much. But I think April's right. It's more about the governing body and its rules here. This person's just following the rules. But it does, it does seem unfair. <laughs> We just got an update uh, from WestJet uh, regarding the wildfire situation around Kelowna. They say we are heartbroken to have to share another travel advisory due to the impact the wildfires are having on communities in Kelowna. We're doing everything within our capacity to help loved one pets crew in the community of Kelowna evacuate safely as soon as possible. Due to the proximity of the wildfires to the airport, operations to and from the airport are not permitted at this time. As a result, we have canceled flights to and from Kelowna today. Now, for guests who have traveled booked to and from Kelowna between uh, August 18th and August 24th, we have implemented a flexible change and cancel policy. Uh, so check with uh, the WestJet Travel Advisory page. So th- this situation has just, you know, really exploded the last uh, day or two here. You know, we're focused uh, so much on what's going on up in Yellowknife and the evacuation of that community. Then all of a sudden, we got this uh, awful situation unfolding around Kelowna. It started with West Kelowna, but now it's uh, across the, the water part there. And it's, it's a, you know, threatening Kelowna itself now. So that's a concerning situation. The situation up in Yellowknife remains concerning as they've evacuated that entire community. And look, it's been a really terrible wildfire season. We've had it here uh, in B.C. We saw some huge wildfires in Ontario and Quebec earlier in the summer. Remember, those fires were blanketing all kinds of smoke over wide swaths of the U.S. And then, of course, we had the situation that unfolded in Maui, which has just been uh, horrible. So it's been a really bad year for wildfires. There's been a weird byproduct of all of that, and maybe you've seen it yourself on social media. Uh, The growth of conspiracy theories around wildfires, that there's some uh, more sinister forces at play here that's causing all of this. And I I don't know, to me, it, it, it doesn't seem like, I mean, conspiracy theories are not new, but conspiracy theories around natural disasters or weather seem kind of weird to me. So how do we explain this? How do we make sense of all of this? Well, joining us to talk more about this issue, very pleased to welcome to the program, someone who focuses a lot of his work on this very issue, Mike Rothschild, a journalist and author based in Los Angeles, uh, focuses his writing on conspiracy theories and fringe beliefs. He's got a new book coming out next month called Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. More to his website, themikerothschild.com. Mike, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, let's get the obvious question out of the way. I would imagine it's it's a little odd to have the last name Rothschild and, and write about <laughs> conspiracy theories. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, if I'd planned a little better, I probably would have taken a pen name. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people would have figured it out. And then it looks like I have something to hide. So right. I figure, you know, I'm just going to work under my own name. And if people have a problem with it, it's their problem and it's not my problem. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, this this seems unusual or, or I don't know if it's a new phenomenon or not. The, you know, the idea of kind of natural disasters, in this case, wildfires, spawning conspiracy theories. Is that new or is there, there maybe more of a history here? The specific uh, you know, lasers causing wildfires theory is, is fairly newish, maybe in the last decade. But there's always been a lot of conspiracy theories about weather control, uh, man-made earthquakes, man-made tsunamis, things like that. So this is really just another form of the sort of they control the weather, they uh, manipulate the earth against us. So it's, it's kind of a new iteration on a classic theme. And what is it about wildfires specifically? Because it seems like, you know, we've we've had wildfires, forest fires for years. Some years are worse than others, obviously, but wildfires can start easily, spread easily. Why do we need uh, outlandish uh, theories to, to explain something that seems so obvious? Well, at the risk of sounding obvious, I think it is because a lot of people really don't understand how fire works. Uh, we, we have a lack of, of basic science teaching in, in a lot of countries. And I think when people see a raging fire that doesn't act the way fires act on TV. I think people look at it as uh, mysterious and therefore as someone manipulating it with some kind of directed energy weapon rather than understanding that fires can do a lot of things. They sort of have a life of their own. They move in one direction, they move in another direction. Embers blow one way, they don't blow another way. Some guy's house gets burned down, his neighbor's house doesn't get touched. And we want to know why that happened, because it doesn't look like what we think a fire is supposed to look like. Right. And, and it, certainly social media plays a role, and it's a lot easier to spread these theories or, or post videos, uh, you know, to suggest that, as you say, space lasers were causing these fires or, you know, something, uh, uh, you know, something else strange was going on or certain areas were spared or, or these kinds of things. How does social media factor into the spread of these theories? Social media makes it very easy to recycle old pictures, old memes, old accusations, and repurpose them for the next version of whatever is going on. It spreads very quickly. It spreads without any vetting, without any fact-checking. And they're often spread by these major influencers who often have hundreds of thousands of followers, who have popular podcasts, popular blogs, popular live streams. They get these ideas out to a huge number of people who all are kind of believing in the same ideas, who believe that there's this dark cabal who will do anything to increase their power and their money. So why wouldn't they start a forest fire in Canada or Maui or wherever? And no one is checking these theories. There's no check on them on social media. Uh, certainly we've seen Twitter, the, the, you know, the uh, guardrails have completely gone off. And by the time the media gets around to actually debunking this, it's been around for days now because the first day or two, nobody's taking it seriously. And then you jump on it and go, oh, it's everywhere now. What is the appeal? Is, is it just because, you know, the simple explanation is, is boring or is it, is it much deeper than that? It's both. It is that the simple explanation is boring, and a lot of these people want to feel like there's a battle between good and evil going on, and they know what's happening. They've got the special knowledge. They're part of the secret club. I think it's also that we see something big like this, and we, we don't want to believe 
that it happened accidentally. And for a lot of these people, they don't want to believe that there could be any kind of climate change component to it. I think the climate denial is a huge part of what drives these theories. We know that the, the climate is getting hotter. We know that the forests are drier. They're much more prone to fires. But if you don't want to believe that, you're going to gravitate toward the laser because it, it, uh, it, it gets you off the hook of believing the thing you don't want to believe. Yeah, I, I do notice that there, there's there's kind of a political connection. I mean, even with 9-11 conspiracy theories, right, the, the terrorist attacks can highlight issues around U.S. foreign policy or the threat of extremism. When we see mass shootings, it raises issues uh, around the gun control debate. And, and yeah, forest fires are, are highlighting a lot of issues uh, around climate change. So once those kinds of issues get dragged in, does it make it more fertile ground for conspiracy theories? Absolutely. Any issue where you've got a lot of politicization going on, which is everything now, is going to be rife with conspiracy theories because you've got people who just don't want to see the obvious answer or who think that the climate change answer is a scam. It's a hoax. It's part of the deep state plot along with the lasers. So you have a lot of different political angles going at this, and it prevents any kind of real discussion about what can we do about this problem because we're so busy yelling at each other about really outlandish things. Right. It almost feels kind of futile, like this is just how it is. Conspiracy theories are out there. there. They pl- proliferate on, on the Internet and social media, and as we just kind of have to gotta live with it, basically. But I don't know. I mean, there, are there ways of countering this or at least minimizing this? I think there are ways of countering it in your own life. You know, the, the, the obvious solution, at least to me, is a much more personal one. It's to police your own digital hygiene. You know, if you see a picture of what looks like a laser beam starting a forest fire, don't share it. Uh, even if you're making fun of it, even if you think it's really stupid, don't share it. Don't put it out there to more people. You know, if you do feel like you have to share it, you know, for your job or whatever, at least take a screenshot of it. Don't increase the engagement that these posts get because these, these viral posts get millions of views. They bring in ad revenue. They bring in website subscriptions. And even just something simple as not sharing it uh, kind of cuts that off. But you're asking a lot of people to do that, and you're asking people yeah. to kind of go against their instincts of, hey, look at this. This is weird. Right. And, and then there's the temptation, too, to to engage if, you know, you've got a, a Facebook friend, a relative, whatever, who's, who's posting this stuff. You know, the, the temptation to jump in and say, oh, this is ridiculous. Why are you posting this? And, you know, sparks all kinds of fights. But it, it almost feels like at times, you know, when, when people buy into this, they're kind of what I guess we would call non-falsifiable beliefs. right? Like there's no way to disprove it because any evidence that, that you might put forward to try to explain it, well, you know, that's all part of the plot or part of the cover up or that's what. They want you to believe that sort of thing. So I don't know. How do you feel about the merits of trying to engage or, or debunk? I would say most of the time it's totally futile. You're right. It's because these people don't want to be wrong and they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to look stupid. If you do have a relative who, or a friend who is posting this stuff, most of the time the solution is just don't do anything. Um, just let it go. If you feel like there is maybe some veering into anti-Semitism or racism or extremism, Maybe you can you reach out to them privately, not in a confrontational manner, not in a I'm going to yell at you manner, but say, hey, you know, you posted this. And did you read this? You know, hey, did you know that this could veer into this territory? Sometimes the person go, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I was just sharing this. I thought it was interesting. Other times it's going to spark an argument in private. But most of the time, there's just not a lot you can do other than police yourself. 
Well, and there is that more sinister side, as you mentioned, and, and it certainly you know speaks to the, the, the name of your new book that a lot of these theories really do skirt close to and, and you know, frankly, spill over to anti-Semitism. And, and there's a whole history, I guess, uh, around anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. What do you see as, as the connection or overlap? There is always the tendency to blame any kind of major event like this on, uh, you know, them in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. And them or they or the cabal or the deep state or the new world order, they've always got funders. And those funders are pretty much always going to be wealthy and powerful Jewish people. So when you start off saying, you know, they're burning up the land in Maui, well, who's they right. and who's funding them? Well, we know, you know, we know who that is. So it's very easy for that to into anti-Semitism because it happens over and over and over. Every generation has its own version of the sort of powerful Jewish puppet master. Well, the book is mentioned. It's called Jewish Space Lasers, the Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. It's out next month. Much more at themikerothschild.com. Mike, thanks so much for your insight on all of this. Appreciate making some time for us here. Thank you very much. That's uh, author, journalist uh, Mike Rothschild, so some interesting thoughts from him. Oddly enough, just as we're talking about this here, I I see the uh, actor Russell Brand, who's kind of outspoken on social media. I think maybe he does a podcast or something. Uh, He's out spreading this same kind of thing, that the company BlackRock conspired with the elites using lasers from space to start the Maui wildfires so they could swoop in and take over the land and profits. So... Um, yeah, he's got quite a wide audience. So it speaks to, you know, the spread of this kind of nonsense. We, we spoke earlier this week about the July inflation numbers. The annual inflation rate crept up to 3.3% in July. It was 2.8% the month before. Electricity prices were a big contributor to that. Across the country, electricity was up 11.7%. But in Alberta, it was 127.8%, massive increase here. In fact, Alberta's electricity prices were a, a measurable factor in the overall inflation rate. Now, you know, this is not new to those that are on a floating rate or those who are stuck on the, the regulated rate option. And those, those rates have, have gone through the roof. But I guess why? Like what's causing that? And maybe there are a lot of easy scapegoats. There's a lot of politics uh, in the debate around electricity, as we're seeing around renewables and net zero. But there's also a lot of complexity when it comes to how electricity is is operated in Alberta. Um, so there's some specific things that have been happening that have led to these price increases here. So I want to try to break it down uh, with someone who follows all this very closely. Blake Schaefer is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Calgary and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Blake, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. You bet. Thanks for having me. Um, but that's quite a staggering number, isn't it? I don't know if we've really seen anything like that in recent memory. How unprecedented uh, is this increase, first of all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an absurd number, 128% inflation. Um, one big thing there, I, I think, because I saw that and I had to dig into it to try yeah. to understand, because that didn't even make sense to me, and I followed this closely. A, a big part of that is what we call a base effect. So if you go back a year ago... That's when um, the UCP had those, I believe they were $100 rebates on electricity bills. And the CPI calculation takes into account a total bill. And so that would have come off. And so we're working from a situation where you had a $100 bill credit on your bill and that's gone. And on top of that, you have what you mentioned, which is those floating and RRO rates 
uh, at record levels. So uh, the actual market contributed to it, but a big part of that was just um, right now we don't have $100 rebates, and a year ago we did. Yeah, that's important to note. But we do have high rates right now. I mean, that that much is certainly the case. So how how do we understand that? How do we explain that? Yeah, I, I like what you said. Everybody's got their favorite scapegoat, their mm-hmm. favorite place. I've I've seen people on Twitter tell me that it's the federal carbon tax, which actually doesn't even apply to electricity. Uh, provincial carbon pricing hits generators, but it's not a very big impact based on uh, how it is set. Um, there's three big reasons going on. Um, one is we've got demand growth in the province. Got a lot of people coming here. We've got growth in electrification. So we have seen an increase in total demand that raises prices. On the supply side, one of the biggest changes this summer that's really been, the I'd say, one of the major reasons for an increase in the summer is a big restriction on our interties, so our connections with um, BC and Montana. I don't think the Saskatchewan has been as affected, although today it's not running, but uh, those other ones uh, have been affected. So BC and Montana, we can get normally around 850 megawatts coming in. That's about 8% of our total demand. Mm -hmm. It's been restricted down to 300. So that's a change the ASO put in for reliability reasons uh, while they work on some issues related to frequency response. So that's kind of getting in the weeds, but that's a big restriction because those megawatts come in from BC when we need them most. Um, But the other thing, and I think I was on your show a year ago talking about this, is a big change happened in 2021 the end of these 20-year-long legislated power purchase arrangements that sort of took us from a regulated to unregulated market, when those ended, the offer control of our largest plants reverted back to the original owners. And so what, in short, what that means is we have more concentration of ownership. So the big generators got a little bit bigger. And when you have tighter conditions and you have less players on the supply side, at least in terms of the major generators, they've raised their prices. And so they're doing what you would in any market. If I was an umbrella seller today, I'm looking at my window, it's pouring, I would raise the price of umbrellas. They've raised the price in their offers. And you see that in the bidding data. It's all public in Alberta. And you just see the change in offer behavior that occurred in 2021, and it's persisted all the way through. So does that suggest that maybe we're we're stuck with that for now? So... Alberta allows us, we're one of the few jurisdictions that really allows what is called economic withholding, which is a more lay term would just be offering your prices high. Um, We allow that in electricity under the premise that, you know, eventually high prices will beget new entry of other supply. People will say, I want to make that money and I'll build a power plant. Uh, That's a lot easier if you're in the umbrella market. If I start offering high price umbrellas, someone else is going to go, pick them up at Walmart and sell, sell them on the street near me. Uh, in power, it takes a couple years, several years to build power plants. And so that's what we're in. But there is hope on the horizon. We do have three major gas plants slated to be completed by the end of next year. In fact, one is going to be completed uh, in the next month here, 900 megawatt Cascades combined cycle plant. It would be the largest in the province. Uh, Capital Powers Genesee, it's an old coal plant that's getting fully repowered to gas and and much bigger capacity. Um, And then Suncor has a a large plant uh, planned as well. Combined, that's going to be 2,700 megawatts. That's about a quarter of the gas system today. So a big increase. The forward markets for power suggest that's going to lower prices substantially. 
Uh, we also have more renewables, about 2,000 megs of renewables under construction right now. Uh, we have thousands of megs in the queue, but of course, as we know, we don't know when those will get constructed due to the moratorium that was just placed on that. Well, and I did want to touch on that because that's something I do hear from a lot of people, that if we've had all of this growth in renewables, then why isn't that paying dividends right now? Because it's summer, it's sunny, it's windy, but has all of that yet been incorporated into the grid? Yeah, I mean, one thing to say is while there's been large growth, we're starting from a very small base. We had yeah. 15, one five megawatts of solar, I think, two years ago. We now have 1,200. So that's a percentage-wise, these are huge numbers. But 1,200 megawatts of solar, um, you know, you have to deal, that's, that's the maximum capacity. How much it actually generates is closer to 20, 25% of that on average. So it does take time. You need thousands of megawatts to get up to a meaningful level. We do see a dent, especially from solar, in that middle of the day summer period uh, when it's been constructed. Uh, or sorry, sorry, when it's generating. Um, um, but it's the tail end then of the day when you, when you start to lose that. Uh, conditions are tighter, and that's when other generators are uh, able to make back, um, you know, much more than their costs uh, during those other periods. And the competition there is other dispatchable generators or storage that can compete in those hours. The intertie is also another strong competitor there to discipline prices. You'll see BC, Montana, and Saskatchewan flooding in during those periods, but that's been the real issue for the last few months is our grid operator has restricted those flows, which really inhibits a competitive response from our neighbors. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the, the natural gas capacity that's uh, about to come online. And I know there's been some yeah. concern about our ability to add more natural gas in part because of the, the looming clean energy regulation, the electricity regulations rather. But uh, as you say, we have three coming online and I guess depending on what happens with the, the stringency around the CER, but there's still the potential then that, you know, the, these will, will operate for at least another 20 years. That's right. I hope that dispels the statements that, you know, we're not going to be able to build natural gas. We have 2,700 megawatts of natural gas about to come online here. The current rules that federal government's um, proposed, and it's now starting their consultation period, is a 20-year prescribed life starting in... Um, uh, yeah, 20-year prescribed life. Yeah. And so these plants that are coming online this year and into 2024, they'll, they'll, they will be allowed to run, and I'll say this carefully, under a net zero regulation, they'll be able to run unabated until 2044. So the net zero has, in my view, a lot of asterisks and, and uh, right. hand quotes around it. There is going to be a lot of gas that's capable of running beyond it, um, one of the things I was actually surprised it was limited to 20 years. I was expecting something more like the technical life of a plant, which would be 30, 35 years. Mm -hmm. um, so there's probably still some negotiations to be had there. On top of that, once a plant reaches that 20-year life, it can continue to operate unabated, meaning you're not sequestering and capturing the carbon. Um, and as long as it's under a minimum, or sorry, under a maximum of 450 hours a year, which is roughly 5% of the time. So we can use the gas plants as what we would call peaker plants. That, that's another area where I think the Alberta government should go back to the feds and say 5% isn't sufficient yeah. um, because there's no peaker plant that runs only 5% of the plant at a time and, uh, that I know of. The more typical would be something in the range of 10 to 20%. 
so that gives us a lot more flexibility if we can move up there. And you can move, use those plants sparingly when you need the most. You would be paying the carbon price on it, so there's a deterrent to do so. But at least we have it if we need it. And I think that's the type of flexibility we should go back to the feds and ask for. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm curious, too. I mean, Alberta has a unique system, what they call the energy-only system, which is mm-hmm. kind of a competitive free market. Um, both through the, the federal proposed regulations and also what the Alberta government's been talking about, you know, the idea that government should have more of a say on how the grid is, is structured. Are we kind of moving away from the the system we've had for the last couple of decades? Is it happening kind of quietly or, or maybe not so quietly, but are things changing or about to change? That's, a, that's an excellent question because that's certainly what I took away from the provincial government's moratorium and discussion about specific technologies we need. It came across very clear that they would like their hand on the till to be able to say, I want some of this, I don't want that. That's not what we have set up. We've set up a market to incentivize a generation to come on. Um, Yep, a lot of renewables are coming on and they come with their challenges. But you know what? They're not compensated as well as the dispatchable ones that can be there at times of high prices. So there are market alignments of these incentives. The, the, the value of wind and solar will fall as more gets built because there'll be too much and then you're going to start to see storage come in because they can move power from cheap times to expensive times. So the market's set up to do this, but certainly, and in Alberta has held firm on that for many years. Uh, yet it does seem through the discussions lately that there's a desire to change I mean, the federal ones, you're right, you could call that an intrusion into what can be built as well. They'll, of course, suggest it's more of an intrusion into what can emit. Um, so you can build anything you want so much as you can capture the carbon or, or use alternative fuel sources. Um, but in my view, with such transformative change that is required in Alberta's system going forward, we do need a, a rethink on the market design. We need to look at, are we capturing all the components of costs, all the components of value, um, and are we properly managing the risk uh, that both generators and consumers face? Uh, thankfully, it looks like the ASO, the grid operators, started a market design consultation just recently. Mm-hmm. So they um, they are feeling the same, and, and uh, I think it's something we need to be doing now. But I mean, and, and just quickly too, and you know, on transmission or even you know, interties between provinces. I mean, that that inevitably involves government, doesn't it? Yes, um, that is still a part of our system that is fully regulated. And we talk about having a deregulated market. That's only the generation right. and retail side. The transmission and distribution or cost of service regulation type uh, models, um, and especially once you start talking about interprovincial interties, you're getting into the government level because you're having to bridge different market models. So you'll never get away from that. But I guess on the internal transmission, um, there is lots of stuff that can happen well below the political level. Um, there's changes to cost allocation. We could we could decide to have more, um, you know, more ref- locational reflective pricing going on in, in our province so that it incentivizes you to build power plants closer to where it's needed. Uh, right now, we sort of look at a case-by-case basis on each project and decide if the transmission is worth it. But that could be done in a more market-based approach as well. Other other markets do that. They have locational pricing. Yeah. We'll leave it there, Professor Schaefer. Appreciate uh, your insight on all of this and, and the overview of what's happening with uh, Alberta's electricity market. Thanks so much for joining us here. 
You bet. Always happy to chat with you. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. Uh, Blake Schaefer, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, someone who closely follows uh, what's happening with the electricity in Alberta. So an interesting overview of some of the complexities in the system and what's kind of conspired right now to drive up electricity prices. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.